Please open your Bible to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. And uh, as you turn there, I want to um, uh, make a guarantee to you. And I guarantee you that if you have not already, you will face relational conflict. You are going to come into conflict with those around you. And this is not just true for people generally, but it's true for people in the church. We do and we will face conflict among the church amidst this body of believers. It's inevitable. And God knows the reality of the conflict that we will face, even in the context of the church, the community of his disciples. And so he gives us his word to both equip us and show us who he is. It's the reality of who he is that gives shape to our life together. And as we've sung and as Chris prayed, we we really are a community of the word. And so as we gather together, we don't gather to say something in ourselves or, or of ourselves. We gather to listen. We gather to hear Jesus speak. And only once Jesus, only once we have been spoken to by God, do we have anything to say. So, so we gather to listen. That is the, the fundamental activity of the church. We gather to hear. So as we turn to God's word this morning, we need to ask for the Spirit's help that we might listen well. So would you pray with me? Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, in whom radiates the fullness of light and to whom belongs all wisdom, enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit. May your Spirit give us grace to receive your word with reverence and humility, without which we cannot understand your truth, apart from which I cannot speak your truth. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us the gift of hearing and being shaped by your word together this morning for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So this morning we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been in this series since September of 2020. And uh, we're yeah, now in Matthew 18. And Matthew writes this gospel with, with a definite purpose. He writes for a reason. And that purpose is quite simply that we might see Jesus and follow him. That we might see Jesus and be defined by who he is and what he says and does. Or to put it even more simply, the purpose that Matthew writes is to make disciples. Matthew writes this gospel to make disciples. Matthew writes that his readers might see who Jesus is and be shaped and formed by him. And it's through the words of Jesus that we are, we are shaped into people who, who see and love certain things. People who think and act in certain ways. And our, our thoughts and our words and our actions and our loves, they're all shaped by God's coming kingdom seen in Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus presents this new and better way of living in the world. We spent some time in the Sermon on the Mount and, and Jesus is teaching that blessed are those. And then he t- talks about who's blessed. Flourishing are those. This is the good life. This is what Jesus holds out. And this is directly relevant to how we relate to one another, to the inevitability of relational conflict. And as we come to Matthew 18, we find that this relationships is the primary focus of Jesus' teaching. It's, it's, he's focused on relationships within Christ's community of disciples, relationships within the family of God, relationships within the church. And Jesus recognizes that inevitability of conflict 
within this community. He doesn't deny that conflict will happen, but he teaches us what to do when it does happen, how to deal with it. And at the beginning of Matthew 18, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Jesus frames this teaching in terms of humility. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples coming at, come asking him, who is the greatest? And the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who walks in humility, in dependence. They are those who avoid temptation to sin and avoid bringing others into temptation. Jesus says, woe to you, woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And so then as humble and dependent disciples, we should exhibit a care and a concern for one another. And we see this care and concern shown by God the Father Himself. And Jesus teaches that each of God's sheep are precious to the Good Shepherd. We saw this last week. He does not leave them nor forsake them, but eagerly goes after them. And then in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Jesus describes how we should respond when a sheep begins to wander. When your brother sins against you. And Jesus describes this process that's rooted in humility, driven by love, and with the purpose of reconciliation and restoration. So committed is the good shepherd to his sheep that he makes provision for his sheep to be brought back into his fold through discipline. But sometimes a sheep continues to wander. Sometimes the confronted brother refuses to listen, right? What then? And Jesus says that they should be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. They should be seen as one who no longer is a part of Christ's community of disciples. They are outside of that community. Now we, and I mean by we, the church in general, often has all kinds of questions about how this works, about how to walk this out. But in the text we come to today, the very, very next thing we come to, Peter responds to Jesus with a different question. He doesn't ask about what to do when things don't work. When your brother refuses to listen. Peter is more concerned with what do we do when he does listen. What do you do when things do work out? What do you do when that person who has sinned against you, when you go to them and they repent? And they ask for forgiveness. What if they sin again? And come back to be forgiven again. What then? How many times must we forgive others? That's what Peter's asking. What do we do when things do work out? So look at verse 21. And before, actually before I jump in there, just, just want to give you, uh, give you an idea of how we're approaching this text. Uh, sermons can be preached either deductively or inductively. And a deductive sermon, at the outset, you state, hey, this is the main point, and then I'm going to logically support it with these other points. An inductive sermon is more like a story. And since Jesus is telling a story here, that's how I'm going to preach this sermon. And it's a story that's told with a point at the end. So we're just going to walk through the story together. So look at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, before we continue, it's helpful to know something of Peter's context. And in Peter's context, the, the, the rabbis would have taught that we should forgive others three times. Three times, that's just kind of the, that's the, the normal and generous amount that we should forgive someone who sins against us. 
three times, and that's enough. And then fourth time, I mean, cut them off. They're done. Three times. So Peter says, how many times should I forgive him? And Peter, being the pious and godly guy that he is, he goes double plus one. As many as seven times? As many as seven times should I forgive him? He sins against me. This time, he, he takes my toy. He repents, and he asks forgiveness. All right, I'll forgive him. The next day, he takes my toy again. He repents and asks forgiveness. I forgive him again. And this repeats itself. As many as seven times, Lord. That's how patient and compassionate and merciful I am. As many as seven times should I forgive him? So maybe, perhaps Jesus wants to respond by using Peter as an example of what generous forgiveness looks like. But while Peter thought he was being exceedingly gracious and godly in his offer to forgive his brother seven times, Jesus shows that Peter has no idea what the attitude of forgiveness really looks like. So we see this in verse 22. Jesus responds, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now your Bible may say 70 times seven. Perhaps you've heard that. It might say 77 times. The Greek is not exactly clear on what number Jesus used, 70 times 7 or 70 times and 7. But as an aside, there's, there is a compelling reason to think that Jesus purposes to use the number 77, and I think this is pretty interesting. It goes back to Genesis 4. Now, Genesis 4 contains this sordid story of Cain and Abel. You right, r- might remember those beloved brothers. And after Cain murders Abel, not so beloved, God punishes Cain. And and he brings a severe punishment upon Cain. And in the midst of that punishment and Cain's fear of himself being killed, God says, this is Genesis 4.15, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. That's how great the vengeance upon that person will be. The punishment for the one who kills Cain will be seven times greater than what Cain received. It will be a severe vengeance, seven times. Then later in Genesis 4, we're introduced to Cain's descendants, and one man in particular, Lamech. Now, Lamech was not a nice or humble guy, and at the end of the chapter, he is boasting to his two wives about how he killed a man for wounding him. And he declares this in Genesis 4, 24. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech is boasting that vengeance is that much more sure. His vengeance, the vengeance that would be upon his killer, is that much more sure and that much more profound than the vengeance that God would have upon Cain's killer. Seventy-sevenfold is this statement of, of tremendous excess, a going far above and beyond anything that seemed within reason. And this is exactly Jesus' point when we come to Matthew 18. Whether he responds to Peter with 70 times 7 or 70 times and 7, 77, doesn't really matter. He's not telling Peter to create a numbered checklist and start keeping track of how many times you forgive your brother. And then once you reach that max, all right, you're done. His point is to emphasize the extravagant, abundant forgiveness that his disciples are called to extend. How many times should you forgive? And with his play on words, Jesus essentially says, every time. So it's interesting. Genesis 4, Lamech is making this point about how great vengeance will be. 
Here, Jesus makes the point of how great forgiveness should be. And from here, Jesus tells a story. He tells a parable about forgiveness. And the story is, is, is cleanly broke up into three scenes. And the first scene begins in verse 23. And Jesus says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So this king, he's a fictional king, and uh, he rules over some kind of fictional realm, and he has servants. And those servants have either promised to do work for him or borrowed something from him, and he, he, one day he wants to collect on all of those accounts. He wants to collect, settle accounts with those servants. In verse 24, Jesus says, When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him, 10,000 talents. Now, I like to think of myself as a man of many talents, but I don't think I have 10,000 talents. Nor do I think you think you have 10,000 talents. We come to this word talents, and we really, I mean, in our day and age, we, what is he talking about? 10,000 talents. Well, talent is a, a unit of measurement used for money, and it was used to measure different metals, normally gold or silver or copper. And one talent was somewhere between 60 and 90 pounds of that metal. And so let's say it was silver, somewhere, somewhere around 75 pounds of silver. Now a talent was the, the largest known amount of money in that day and age. Like that was, that was the, the biggest kind of currency they had. It was like Bitcoin when it's soaring. It's like, that's it. And a typical laborer, they would hope to be able to earn maybe two talents over the course of their lifetime. Like, all of their life's work amounts to two talents. So, this man owes some talents. He doesn't just owe some talents, he owes 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents, if anybody wants to do the quick math, it's around 300 tons of silver. 300 tons of silver. It's this unimaginable amount and I think it's interesting, so 10,000, so talent is the largest kind of form of currency known at that time. 10,000 is the largest Greek number that has a name. 10,000. Put these two things together and you have this, this in, just unimaginable debt. A debt that would take the typical laborer I had, I, last night I was with uh, several of our, our students, middle school and high school students, and was asking them, I mean, guess how long it would take to, to, repay, to repay this debt? Typical laborer. And so, I mean, people started guessing. I mean, a uh, hundred years? said, nope. Three hundred years? Nope, but you're getting closer. A thousand years? Nope, but it's closer. Somebody was like, five thousand years? I mean, you're a little bit closer around 170,000 years it would take to repay that debt. Just like typical worker, 170,000 years. That's a long time. Like unimaginably long. 10,000 talents this servant owed. The point that Jesus is making is that this servant's debt is so great that it's impossible to ever repay. He, there's really no way that he could ever repay this debt. Y'all get that? No way. Then we come 
to verse 25. And this is what Jesus says. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now the master knows that he can't ever really repay this, but this is kind of a a form of punishment for the debt that he owes. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now we've gotten a sense of how much 10,000 talents is, and he falls on his knees, crying out to this master, have mercy on me, and, and look at what he says. And I will pay you everything. Now, we all know that there is no hope that he could ever pay everything. No chance. Doesn't ma- He's asking for patience. But patience is not really going to help him in his case because so great is the debt that he owes. He doesn't need just more time. That's not going to help him out. But that's what he cries out for because that's all he can really cry out for. Be patient with me. What other standing does he have? I mean, I, we, Jesus doesn't tell us how this servant came about this massive debt, like this unimaginably massive debt. There are all kinds of different theories out there, but it doesn't really matter. All that matters is that this was like unpayable. The only thing that the servant can think to do is to ask for mercy and time, which really isn't going to solve his problem, but that's what he asked for. His is a desperate desperate situation, really a hopeless situation. And then we come to verse 27. And we should be shocked by this. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He released him and forgave him the debt. He didn't release him and say, you know what, I know you can't pay this debt back, but go ahead and pay all that you can over the next year or pay all that you can over the next 10 years or the rest of your life or for the next three generations. He could have said any of those things and that would have been merciful. But instead, he forgave him the debt. He, he wiped the books clean. He treated him as if there never was a debt. Can you even imagine this? Do you even have a category for this? I mean, here this servant is with really no basis, no, no standing to ask to make this request to give me more time. And then you've got the king who there is absolutely nothing that would ever compel him to forgive the debt. There is nothing in it for him to forgive the debt. Again, he could have told this servant, you know what, I know this is a massive debt. Five years, I'll give you five years, pay what you can. And then after that, I'll wipe the books clean. And, I mean, I think all of the servants would have been amazed by that. The king would have been a remarkable guy. They would have been eager to serve him. He would have had an incredible reputation. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. He forgave the debt. Unimaginable. Nothing for him to gain by pardoning this debt, but he does. Think of the effect that this would have had upon that servant. I mean, he, it's... This debt didn't happen overnight. Like, it wasn't like one week he came to his dad and asked, can I borrow $5 so I can go and get a a Slurpee at 7-Eleven or four Slurpees at 7-Eleven? It's not like that and then, oh man, I don't have $5. No, this is 10,000 talents. This This took some time 
and some intentionality on, on the debtor's part to accrue that kind of debt, to amass that kind of debt. Can you imagine the, the weight of that? I think probably most of us, many of us, have a mortgage that we have. And there, there can be an, a weight associated with having a mortgage. We carry this debt. And at some point, we've got to deal with it. So great is his debt that it is, I mean, talk about a, a, a weight on him. 10,000 talents something that he can never imagine repaying. And he's been dealing with that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And now that debt has been forgiven. Then we come to verse 28. But when that same servant went out, so this is not like a year later, this is the same servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, again, we don't really know what a denarius is in our day and age, but a denarius was, was a silver coin, just a single silver coin, and it was what a laborer would have earned for a day's work. It was a day's wage, one denarius. So 100 denarii, I mean, it's a pretty significant amount. That's like three or four months of work that this guy owed to the first servant. Now, one talent is equal to about 6,000 denarii. 6,000 denarii. So 10,000 talents, if you're quick with the math, which I'm not, so I wrote it down, equals 60 million denarii. 10,000 talents, 60 million denarii. So the first servant has this debt that has just been forgiven of 60 million denarii, 170,000 years of work, and the second servant has this debt of 100 denarii, three or four months of work. Like, they're not even comparable. Not even comparable at all. But when that same servant went out, verse 28, he found this servant who owed him 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. What is up with this dude? He's just been forgiven this incredibly massive debt. And now he's taking his fellow servant by the neck, telling him to pay me what you owe. Now, remember, like this debt, his other debt has been forgiven. It's not even like he's just trying to scrounge around and say, I need to repay something. He doesn't need to repay anything. It's absurd. Verse 29 so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay the debt. Now that should sound familiar, but if it doesn't, let's go back to verse 26. This is the first servant with the king and he's got a 10,000 talent debt. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. That was the first servant, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. The second servant, have patience with me and I will pay the debt. They sound pretty similar, right? The same request is being made. Have patience with me. They make the same request. They say that they will pay the debt. Who could pay the debt? The first guy couldn't pay the debt. The second guy could pay the debt. Pleading for mercy. Now before we get to verse 30, let's consider, I mean, as we've been doing, what's happening. Jesus is telling the story in a shocking way. This man, the one who owes the hundred denarii, is begging for mercy. And 
the mercy that he's begging for is nothing compared to the mercy the first servant just received. That like the differences are they really stretch the bounds of like what we can fathom. They're beyond comparison. The offense between the king and the first servant is is astoundingly shocking. Like I don't have enough adverbs to throw in front of shocking. The offense between the two servants is fairly typical. I mean it, it was it was a significant amount, but it wasn't unusual. So we should be floored by the response of the first servant to this request for mercy. Look at verse 30 and how he responds. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. I mean, I look at this and I think, what an idiot. What a jerk. I mean, like, what is up with this guy? He's just been forgiven this massive debt. And then this small debt that somebody else owes, he's not willing to have an ounce of mercy for. He didn't say, you know what? I was just forgiven 10,000 talents, so instead of 100 denarii, how about you give me 50 denarii or 10 denarii or whatever? I mean, like there's any number of things that he could have done, but no, no. He throws him in prison, prison until he can pay the debt. Now the story continues. Verse 31 we discover that these two servants were not alone. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Now, I think it's important for us to just brief sidebar and talk about parables. Now, parables... They are stories that, that Jesus tells to make a point. Sometimes we can get a little bit tripped up when we try to make parables equations. And sometimes they are equations, and Jesus teaches them this way, where he, where he uh, says, this equals that, and this equals that. And so you think about the parable of the sower, and Jesus explains the parable and says what all these different things mean. But most parables are not equations. They're just metaphors. They're, they're to... Tell us what things are like, not what things are. And so when we look at this parable, there are some things, and I'm sure as we've been walking through this story, you've seen like, oh, this is kind of like God, or maybe, oh, this is kind of like me, or oh, I've thought this way, or whatever it is. You see some things, you're making some connections, but they're not equations. It's not this equals that. And I bring that up to say, if God is the king in this parable, he doesn't need his servants to see what's going on and tell him. Because he knows all, right? He sees all. So, just we want to tuck that away, keep that in the back of our mind. Parables, interpreting parables, we're interpreting metaphors, not equations. So the fellow servants, they're distressed. They go and tell their master all that has taken place. Verse 32, how does the master respond? Then the first servant's master summoned him. And said to him, you wicked servant. That's an understatement. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Seems like a pretty reasonable response from the king, from the master. Should you not have had mercy 
on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And the mercy that he's calling this first servant to show is nothing, nothing in comparison to the mercy that he has just been shown, right? So verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now, when do you think that's going to happen? It ain't going to happen. He cannot pay that debt. And so we see in the absence of mercy, judgment come upon the first servant. And then Jesus arrives at an explanation in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is a surprising conclusion to this story. And it's surprising because we tend to be a people who, who generally want only a God who shows mercy. We only want a God who, who loves everyone and forgives everyone. That God is a, a, it's just a lot easier to deal with. It's pretty comfortable for me to think about that God. A God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who is merciful and compassionate and gracious. Stop there. Let's stop there. That's good. I'm good with that God. But this is not the God of the Bible. This is not the God that Matthew puts on display for us. This is not who Jesus reveals himself to be. And in in Matthew's gospel in particular, while mercy is a major focus, Jesus also focuses a great deal on judgment. I like what one theologian said about this. He said, judgment is an integral part of Jesus' kingdom message. The kingdom cannot be present if evil is not being named and defeated. If there is no judgment, salvation is not needed. If there is no judgment, salvation is not needed. If there's no recognition that a debt is owed, that there is a judgment to be answered to, then why do we need Jesus? We don't. We don't need him. If there's, if there's no debt, if there's no judgment to come, we're good. But if that were the case, then God would not be a holy and righteous and trustworthy God. He would not be who he says he is. And I think we do well to consider what this parable says about us and says about God. I think it's interesting what it says about how Jesus views us. And, and how does Jesus view us? Where do you think Jesus puts us in this story? He puts us as that first servant. That first servant who, we haven't, we haven't accrued a monetary debt, but in our sin, because of our sin, our sinful natures, the wrongs that we have done to one another and against God, we have an unpayable debt. An unpayable debt that must be paid. Right? There is... Time is not going to help us out with this debt. If I just have enough time, I'll get things figured out, I'll get my life in order, and I'll start doing the right things. That's not going to pay your debt. You can't pay this debt. But thanks be to God. God came in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ, and He has paid that debt. On our behalf. Christ died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Not only has Jesus paid that debt, but because He has paid that debt, in Him we have forgiveness. And because we receive His forgiveness, we then must be a forgiving people. A church of forgiven people must be a forgiving church. But what exactly is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that if you do not forgive, that God will not forgive us? Doesn't that make God's forgiveness sound like something we earn? I mean, look at verse 35 again. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It kind of sounds like that, right? kind of sounds like God's not going to forgive us if we don't forgive others. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching that our forgiveness comes as a response to his forgiveness. If we are truly his disciples, then we will forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. Those who have genuinely received grace, those who have been truly transformed by the gospel, they're, they're marked by a willingness to show that same grace to others. So we don't show grace. We don't extend forgiveness in order to be saved. We show grace and extend forgiveness because we are saved. I heard somebody share this picture of, of how holding apples in your hands does not make you an apple tree. doesn't matter how many apples I hold in my hands, I'm still not going to be an apple tree. But it's indeed characteristic of an apple tree to bear apples, right? If I was an apple tree, then I'm going to bear apples. Forgiving people will not make you a Christian, but Christians, they do forgive. And so may we be those who have, out of the forgiveness that we have experienced, extend forgiveness to others. I want to talk a little bit about forgiveness and uh, Chris Bronze, in his helpful book, Unpacking Forgiveness, this book right here, um, he defines forgiveness this way, and I think it's going to be on, yeah, it is on the screen already, look at that. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended, par- by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant. I'm going to stop there for a second, we can leave the definition up. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended party, so I've been sinned against, And I'm making this commitment to pardon graciously the repentant. Now, we need to keep this in mind. Christian forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, is not just, eh, let's pretend it never happened, and I just need to, uh, I just need to accept it. Everything that happens, I need to accept it. That's not what Christian forgiveness is. It's this commitment to the repentant. In this book, uh, Chris Bronze uses the, the idea of a, a gift. Forgiveness is this gift. It's a present that's been wrapped. We put a bow on it. And we want to give it. But someone cannot receive that gift unless they open it. And that's what repentance looks like. And that's how, how God extends forgiveness to us. God doesn't just forgive all people indiscriminately. God forgives those who repent and believe. So forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability, and it has a purpose, to be reconciled to that person. Forgiveness is for the purpose of reconciliation, for restoration. 
And then this part I think is very important. Although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Again, at times I think we can think of forgiveness as if, if I forgive that person, then what? But to forgive someone does not mean there are no consequences to sin. Consider David. David, who uh, was, was a man after God's own heart, but he sinned in grievous ways. He committed adultery. Then he had that woman's husband murdered. When he was confronted with his sin, did he repent? Yes. Yes, he repented. But do you know what the rest of David's life was marked by? The consequences of that sin. Now, consequences, another way to think of consequences, and a a biblical word for it, would be discipline. And the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so when we face consequences as a result of sin we've committed, even after we've repented and asked for forgiveness and been forgiven, those consequences, they're, they're a gift. That discipline is a gift meant to bring us back into the way of the good life, the way of Jesus Christ. So when we experience consequences, and I'm thinking of both adults and children in this, when we experience consequences because of our sin, we should learn to receive those with a grateful heart and not think that the forgiveness that we've been extended, that we've been granted, was deficient in some way because now I'm suffering consequences because of what I did. No, this is God's good and gracious means of restoring you, of reconciling you to himself and to those around you. Now, you may be one who is struggling with forgiving someone who has wronged you in a significant way. And you may be wondering, I hope you're wondering, why am I unwilling to forgive? You may be wondering, why is it so hard to forgive? And two things I want to just remind you of, uh, two questions. The first is what I just talked about. Do you understand that forgiveness doesn't mean no consequences? Forgiveness doesn't mean just move on, pretend it doesn't matter anymore. Consequences and ultimately vengeance is all in the Lord's hands. And so we are to look to him and to trust in him and and be patient with his sovereign rule over all things. That's the first question. The second question is, do you understand how much you've been forgiven of? And I can answer for myself, and I can answer for all of us. No, we do not. We think we're pretty good people. Um, we, just, we just do. We're proud, and we're self-sufficient, and we like to think that we're pretty good people. And we do need to be forgiven. We need the Lord's forgiveness, because we're sinners. But, I mean, we could be, like, way worse but that's, you're thinking about it all wrong. In your sin, your debt is, is that 10,000 talents. It's that unpayable debt. Our sins are as huge in God's eyes as this, this billion-dollar debt that we cannot pay. There's no way in the world we could ever repay it. The only way that it can be forgiven is God's magnificent grace. It's, it's His initiative It's His coming to us. It's His sending His Son. It's His sending His Spirit. It's His restoring us. It's only His grace. 
And this parable should lead us to, to really reflection, each of us. It, we should reflect and ask this question, do I have the forgiven heart of a forgiven sinner? Do I have the forgiven heart of a forgiven sinner? I want to close with this story that Chris Bronze tells in this book, Unpacking Forgiveness. And uh, he talks about uh, this, a man who was accused of a horrific, committing a horrific crime against a woman named Jennifer Thompson. And as this crime was being committed, Jennifer was careful to pay close attention to the identity of the man because she said, when and if I survive the attack, I'm going to make sure that he was put, I want to make sure that he was put in prison and was going to rot. She wanted to make sure that he suffered the consequences of this sin that he was committing. So then a few days after the crime, she, she was able to identify the man, a guy named Ronald Cotton. And based upon her testimony... This man was sentenced to prison for life. Now, two years later, the man was granted another trial. And again, based upon her her strong and clear testimony, he was convicted. Then, 11 years after that initial conviction, the police came back to Jennifer and asked her to provide a blood sample for a DNA test. And she was happy to do this. Uh, she, in, I mean, in large part, had moved on from that, from that traumatic crime, and she was married, and she had kids, and she just, I mean, wanted to bury this guy and be done with it. So, yeah, absolutely. I'll give you this blood sample. But then the unthinkable happened. The DNA test proved that Ronald Cotton was innocent, and another man had committed this crime. A man who she had said in court didn't commit the crime because she had never seen him before. Jennifer had sent the wrong man to prison. So now not only had Jennifer been the victim of this terrible crime and, and was dealing with, with living with that nightmare, she also had the guilt of taking 11 years from a man's life by falsely accusing him of this crime. She felt constant shame, overwhelming guilt. And then the story continues this way. For two years after learning that Cotton was innocent, Jennifer never stopped feeling ashamed. Over and over she wondered how could she have made such a terrible mistake. And what of the man whose life she had ruined, all those years locked away from his family? Now that he was free, did he hate her as much as she hated herself? Then one day she stopped crying. She knew exactly what to do. A few weeks later, she drove 50 miles to a church in the town where the crime was committed. And she had prayed for the strength to face this moment. She had prayed for the strength to face Ronald Cotton. I'm sorry, she said. If I spent every day for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to what I feel. Ronald Cotton was calm and quiet. Finally, he spoke. I'm not mad at you, he said softly. I've never been mad at you. I just want you to have a good life. For two hours, they sat and talked while their families paced outside. They talked about the pitfalls of memory, the power of faith, the miracle of DNA. They talked about the man who committed the crime. We were both his victims, Cotton said, and Thompson nodded in agreement. As dusk fell, they made their way out of the church in the parking lot, their families weeping. Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton embraced. Now you might ask, how was Ronald Cotton able to forgive the woman who had wrongly accused him? That in itself is an amazing story. Because in prison, Ronald Cotton hated, he knew the man who committed this crime, a guy named Bobby Poole. 
Cotton made a blade out of a piece of metal and planned to kill Poole. But his father pleaded with him not to do it. He told him that if he killed Bobby Poole, he would be like him. Instead, his father encouraged him to turn to Christ, and Ronald Cotton did. He found that Jesus was the one who could and would unpack the burdens pressing down on him. Because Ronald Cotton had himself received the gracious forgiveness of his heavenly father, he was able to forgive Jennifer, Jennifer Thompson graciously. Worn out and broken, carrying the burden of being convicted for a crime he had not committed, Ronald Cotton turned to Jesus and found a Savior who was more lovely and gracious and gentle than he could have ever imagined. And the brilliant light of Christ shone through his own life so that he could do, in turn demonstrate Christ's grace to Jennifer Thompson. Isn't that a remarkable story? May we be a community marked by the same astonishment at grace that Ronald Cotton had that gave him the ability to, to forgive people who did wrong things to him. May we live in the good of, of the grace that comes in knowing that we are forgiven people. Amen? Father, would you help us? Spirit, would you grant us the strength to walk in your ways, to be a people who are astonished at the, the miraculous work that you have done in sending your Son to pay our debt, to forgive us of our sins. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.